Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. A very special one tonight. It's our first call that's being streamed on ACB Community Channel Live. So I want to welcome everyone who's uh, listening to us that way, along with all of our other friends who have called in or uh, email, uh, online in, what have you. Um, we just heard the first of the disclaimers. I do need to do the second disclaimer that we have to uh, put out. And then we will continue on with a very, very exciting program for this evening. Um, I, but I do want to remind you that the purpose of this group is for peer support only. It is not a therapy group, nor does it purport to provide any health services. Just keep that in. We just want to keep that in mind. Now I'd like to go on. I want to thank Debbie for what she's doing. Um, for doing their streaming and Donna is hosting for me this evening while I facilitate and I just want to let you know what we're going to do for tonight's program is leave everyone muted through the first portion of it through the presentation and then you can raise your hands um, when we open it up for questions. And I think there will be quite a few, so we will be running on and on as quickly as possible. Um, with that, I would like to introduce Dr. Paul Rea, who is a clinical gerontologist and an old friend of mine from a very long time ago, and is has been working, has worked for many, many years for the Alzheimer's Foundation as the Vice President in Massachusetts and New Hampshire region. And good evening, Paul. I'm Hi, so forward to this, to your presentation to us. We have more people on this call than we've had on any call before. Everybody's anxious to hear from you. And thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. I should point out, as Terry said, that we've known each other since sixth grade. So <laughs> that's a long time. Um, I think I was in third grade and he was in sixth. He was an yeah, old man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm much older. Um, but uh, this is a very important topic for a whole lot of reasons. And I'm very pleased to be able to share with you some of the things that I've been doing over the last almost 40 years working with people with Alzheimer's disease. And um, because of my visual impairment, I have a special interest in the kinds of things that people who are giving care to those with dementia um, who may have a visual impairment and what some of the issues are that they're facing. Um, and uh, it's, so important to keep you uh, involved and give you some of the skills necessary to maintain that loving involvement over the course of many months and maybe many years of giving care. Um, let me just throw out some numbers to begin with. Um, there are 
almost 6 million individuals in the United States with Alzheimer's disease. I, I should stress that's, that's an estimate. It's not a head count, um, but it's pretty close. And on top of that, there are many other millions of people who have other forms of dementia, like vascular forms of dementia, multi-infarct dementia uh, is probably the most common, frontal temporal lobe dementia, Parkinson's disease, all other kinds of diseases that can cause the condition of dementia. And um, dementia is the condition, Alzheimer's is a particular disease that causes that condition of memory loss, confusion, and disorientation. And if we look at those six million individuals with Alzheimer's disease, we recognize that that number is increasing geometrically uh, every five to seven years. Um, however, I also should point out in a point of good news is that your risk for getting the disease is decreasing by, thir by 13% every decade. And that's because the number of older people are increasing, but because we're controlling um, uh, vascular disease in general, high blood pressure, heart disease, um, we're reducing your risks for Alzheimer's disease. If we look at the number of people in the United States who are legally blind, it's 1.5 million. And if we look at those individuals who have 2060 acuity ratings uh, or higher, um, it's 5.5. So you put these numbers together, and what we see is that 31% of the people who are caregivers for those who have Alzheimer's or related disorders have a visual impairment, either legally blind or have very limited vision 2060 or, or greater. And that brings a lot of separate issues um, uh, that you all are facing. And uh, in addition to just caring, uh, the, the great difficulty in caring for someone who has Alzheimer's in your home. Um, how you define uh, a situation is depends on and, and determines how you will address that situation. And in some cases, people define Alzheimer's disease as something that is incurable. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just a normal part of aging, and there's nothing that can change about it. It has an inevitable trajectory of just getting worse over time and leading to death. Another way of looking at Alzheimer's disease in terms of what we are able to do or not do about it is to say, well, um, it's uh, a, a disease for which there's no cure, <clears throat> but what we can do is provide comfort care to the person as they degenerate over a period of time. And it's, we just call that palliative care. Another way of looking at it, and, and this is probably one that's the most common today, is this is a, you know, dementias are diseases for which there are probably no immediate cure. Um, so we, the best thing we can do is put all our energy into finding a medication 
uh, or a drug of some sort that will make it all go away. And so that we don't put a lot of energy into trying to determine how we can make things better for the person. And that's what I've been doing and that's what many of my colleagues have been doing for the last 25, 30 years. We've been investigating how we can capitalize on what is still there in the person and enable the caregivers to focus on not what has been lost, but what is still there and how you're able to maintain what indeed is still there. And the technique that I have developed is called habilitation therapy. Habilitation therapy. That's not rehabilitation therapy. Rehabilitation therapy means you restore the person to the way they were. We know we can't do that. We can't make the person with Alzheimer's better. Uh, we can't make them the way they were. But what we can do is help them hang on to what is still there for a, a longer period of time. And that's all in the hands of the caregiver and how the caregiver establishes the environment around the person. And in the research that I've been doing and my colleagues have been doing over the course of the last 25 years, um, is we've been showing that in fact we can do that. That if we teach people how to um, use habilitation therapy techniques, um, we can enable the person with the disease to do better at various points along the course of their disease and require less medication uh, over the course of their disease. Um, and we've published studies that have shown that. Um, the habilitation therapy is divided into what I call domains. The domain is simply an area in which you have an opportunity to maintain the person's cognitive and social skills at any point in time. Everything in habilitation is based on the notion that what we're trying to get to is a part of the brain. And this is the one technical term I want you to remember. Part of the brain that controls basic emotion is called the amygdala the amygdala and that part of the brain is a very primitive part of the brain it's very low in in the brain and it's involved in basic almost primitive forms of emotions the more complicated kinds of emotion are very high in the brain in the front of the brain in the frontal lobe of the brain and those that's the part of the brain that um, has to do with rational thinking um, it has to do with all the things we learned in school and uh, all the mores we learned in our society, uh, the things we do, do, we should do, and that we try to maintain a certain kind of decorum in our lives. That's in the, in the front part of the brain, and that's the part of the brain that is damaged fairly early in Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. The part of the brain that remains intact fairly long into the disease is the amygdala. And as caregivers, your challenge is 
finding ways to get to the amygdala, and that's what I want to talk about. And the domains of habilitation are areas in which you can get directly to the amygdala and um, help the person use and maintain what is still there and not worry about what has been lost. Um, we can't restore that, but we can maintain for as long as feasible what is still there by using ways to get to create positive emotion for the person and get to that part of the brain that can appreciate positive emotion. So the domains are areas in which we have an opportunity to do that. The first domain I want to talk about is uh, having to do with communications. And we separate the communication domain into two areas. These, the uh, rules of communication, the basic things that you just kind of do, and then the strategies of communication, the things that you want to think about and, and use your own intuition in how best to use them. So the rules of communication are always approach the person from the front. Don't come from uh, the from a side of them, but you want to maintain eye contact as much as possible. If you have a visual impairment, that may be difficult, but I want you to try to position yourself that if the person who has Alzheimer's disease has normal vision, that they then can um, uh, maintain eye contact because it's so important that someone with Alzheimer's disease is, their eyes are dilating in exact synchrony with your eye dilations. And that synchrony is a way of bonding with the person. If you think about infants, this is one of the very early things that change in infancy. The infant learns to bond by visual contact by synchronizing their eye dilations with their mother's eye dilations or their caregiver's eye dilations. Um, and so that is setting up an emotional bond with the infant and the child. In the same way with Alzheimer's disease, the person is setting up a bond with you by synchronizing your eye dilations. And they, they need to be in, in uh, Point nose to nose um, uh, connection, so they see your eyes. Other thing, other interesting point about uh, vision and dementia is that um, not only are their their uh, eyes dilating with yours, but the person is um, using their vision to read your lips has their hearing may be impaired because of the disease, um, then they become more reliant on lip reading. So it's important that they see your mouth. So as you have made front-to-front -front contact, you say your name, even if you're in and out of the room, and even if you, you know, your husband and wife, daughter and mother, you say, hi, mom, it's Grace. Hi, honey. It's grace. Say who you are. Um, 
and you may even put your hand on the person just to make sure that um, there's that physical contact that's there. And then I want you to sit to the person's left if you're going to be seated. And that's going to cause them to turn to the left, accessing the right part of the brain. Because as they turn, their eye their eyes turn to see you, and eye movement determines what part of the brain is used uh, more dominantly. And the right side of the brain is the part of the brain that is better able to deal with emotions. And the goal of habilitation, remember, is to bring about a positive emotion and to maintain that positive emotion over the course of the day. That's your responsibility. That's the key to helping the person um, hang on to the skills they have for a longer period of time and to decline more slowly. So you've established yourself um, and you said your name, you're sitting to the, to the left of the person, and then you're going to give whatever direction you want to give um, in the simplest form possible, based on where the person is in their disease. Those are some of the rules of communication. But the strategies of communication are much more sophisticated and they need more um, of your own understanding. And the first rule of uh, uh, strategies of communication is Never, ever, ever use the word no. If the person wakes up at four in the morning and they wake you up and they say, they're gonna go out for a walk in the middle of a snowstorm, your natu natural tendency is to say, no, that's crazy, don't do that. And the minute you say no, first of all, all your body language changes. And the person is paying attention to that negative body language, including the sound of your voice. The word no carries all kinds of connotations with it, where it's saying, she's trying to control what I want to do. Remember, the person has lost sort of rationality. They don't understand that it's four in the morning, it's snowing out, and that's probably not a good idea to go out. The minute you say no, you're setting up a confrontational situation. You're causing a negative emotion to occur and you're going to react negatively. What I want you to do is to say, what a great idea. You know, I didn't think about that. Let's do it. But before we go, let's have, we're going to do it. But before we go, let's have a cup of coffee and a sandwich. And you're going to use two very important skills where you refocus and you redirect. You refocus a person's attention to something else, and then you redirect their behavior to something else. So you might say, we're going to go on that walk, but before we go, let's have a cup of coffee and a sandwich. What's your favorite kind of sandwich? That's refocusing. You're asking them to think about something else, which will, in many cases, help this, uh, erode the original intention to go outside. And then you're going to say, 
maybe they'll say it's peanut butter and jelly, and you're going to say, well, help me make that sandwich. Come over here, we'll make it together. And that's redirection, where they actually make the sandwich with you. And you keep saying, we're going to go out. But all that takes time, and it changes whatever original intention they had to go out, and it also erodes the memory that they, they wanted to go out. And you're much better able um, of redirecting them rather than having a confrontation and saying, no, you're never going to go out. So whatever it is, get the word no out of your caregiving vocabulary because it's only going to cause problems. Another communication strategy is sometimes it's, and this is a hard one to learn, is that um, the person may say something that we know is untrue. And um, the immediate, our immediate response is to say, is to correct them. And that's only going to cause a negative emotion. Remember, your goal is always to think about providing a positive emotion and avoiding a negative emotion. So if the person says, for example, I need to go to work today, and you say, oh, no, don't you remember? You're retired. The person's going to sit back to themselves and say, oh, my God, I can't believe I forgot that. And that's going to cause a negative emotion, more anxiety, and that's going to destroy the person's ability for that period of early period of the day to, say, to be able to do anything. You're causing a negative emotion when you want to have a positive emotion. So rather than say, don't, you forgot that you, you need to, you don't, you're retired, you say, okay, let's get ready and we'll get you ready for work and then you're going to refocus and redirect. But try not to correct the person in that regard. Um, we also sometimes get to the point where the person may say, I just saw my mother. And, and you know that their mother is long dead. And so the natural tendency is to um, um, tell the person that the mother has died. Um, but the minute you say your mother is dead, again, the person is, is going to be uh, mournful that their mother has died and, and also say, I can remember my mother has died. And so it's going, to pre it's going to catapult them into mourning, into grieving, and they're not going to be able to get out of it for a matter of hours. So in, in order, rather than saying your mother is dead, I would suggest you say, tell me about, tell me about mom. I, I know she's a wonderful lady. What kinds of good memories do you have about her? Or you could even say, you know, I talked to her a few, a few days ago. She's doing fine. Um, or, you know, mom's gone to visit with your sister, Dorothy. Uh, she's fine. But to use something that we call in the field therapeutic fibrillates. Therapeutic fibrillates. Little fibs that you need to be okay with using and get, and, and get yourself out of the sense of guilt because you know it's a form of therapeutic intervention 
for the person with the disease. Moving on to another uh, area of habilitation, uh, another domain, and this is one of the most important ones and one that I, I really think that we all have an opportunity to do better with. And that is realizing that the person with dementia still has to remain social. That's such a, a human need that, we, that they feel that they're self-actualized, that they are still important, that they still have meaning, that they're still able to, to um, help others um, and, and have emotions that are positive. And um, so I encourage you um, to, to use social environments as much as possible. Now, during this pandemic, that's hard to do. You know, we have adult day health programs that maybe some of you have used, which I think are worth their weight in gold for a whole lot of reasons. But um, they may not be available now. Or maybe we can't have as many family gatherings as we once had. But I want to encourage you to, to make sure that you, you spend at least an hour a day, if not more, in planning a social event for the person where it just could be that you're doing something one-on-one. -on -one. Probably the best therapy overall that I can say is music. And particularly finding the music that the person enjoyed when they were young, between the ages, say, of 15 and 30. Um, and there's a, lots of research now that has shown that if you can get that, in, that music together on a machine of some sort and uh, play it for the person for half hour, 45 minutes in the afternoon, that causes a, a positive emotion that lingers far into the evening. I can't stress enough how the music of our youth or our younger years is incredibly important and soothing. Um, related to that, let me give you, give you a story. My aunt had Alzheimer's disease and she was a screamer. She would scream, help me, help me, help me for hours on end at the top of her lungs. And I wanted to, I was desperate to find something that would help her. And I realized that she was screaming in a rhythm. And I realized that infants respond to rhythm, particularly, you know, prenatally, the infant is soothed by his, its mother's heartbeat. So I wanted to find something that had a rhythm that would calm my heart. And at the time, on the radio, they played the Catholic Rosary. And the, what, reciting the whole Rosary, there's a sort of rhythm to it. It's very um, uh, rhythmic. And I recorded that. And when I played the Rosary for her, both the spiritual memory plus the rhythm immediately calmed her. And I was so concerned about, how, and this was in the days when you had tape recording, and I, I, I was so concerned that the tape was going to break, I made multiple copies just in case, because that was the only thing that would calm her. 
But I want to stress how important music can be, uh, particularly if it's a music of their youth that can be used in the afternoon. Also having telephone trees, connecting with other people that the person may know, that you have a, a community telephone tree that the person is talking to several people, could be simultaneously, or it could be one at a time, depending upon the, the person with dementia's um, place in the disease. They may not be able to, if they're later in the disease, they may not be able to handle a multiple uh, linked conversation. Maybe they just need one-on-one. -on -one. But to actually get family to call at a certain time in the afternoon to avoid sundowning, the worsening of behavior as the day goes on. Um, to, to have tasks for the person to do. Maybe if they're still in, able to be involved in cooking, to maybe they can't do everything involved in providing a, a certain recipe, but stand at your shoulder and you do it and you keep asking them, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? So that they are, uh, are feel as if they're still participating in the process. It's bringing about a positive emotion. That is the miracle cure. That's not a cure, the miracle medicine for this disease to, to uh, keep the person doing better for a longer period of time. Um, are, have I gone beyond my 25 minutes? That's, Paul, it, that's perfectly fine. I'm wondering, if I can ask you a question or two sure. brought up in my mind, and that is what are the differences between what are the differences in a, in a nutshell? I know this is probably a really big question. The differences between Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, and how do you how does somebody determine what they're looking at? Sure, um, Alzheimer's is a is a is the most common form of dementia and it is a disease that is caused um, by changes in um, uh, chemicals in the brain that support neurons and it, 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 the chemical in particular is called beta amyloid and beta amyloid is um, being lost um, in the, because of Alzheimer's disease and because of its diminishing amounts, it's causing complete brain connections to be lost. A neuron has probably hundreds of thousands of neural little wires that connect itself to other things. And um, because be this beta amyloid chemical isn't there, those connections are being lost. And so you can't get to certain parts of the brain very quickly. And eventually you can't get to those certain parts of the brain at all because of the disease. And what is additionally important to know is that um, the uh, amyloid, the, uh, the, the brain connections rather, um, are uh, lost in, in, a, in a certain pattern so that certain capacities are 
uh, lost first. And, and memory is one of the early things that is lost. And what I want, I think what's important for people to, to understand the difference between Alzheimer's and some of the other forms of dementia is let's think about memory as a filing cabinet. And um, if you want something that you want to hold on to and you want to keep in memory, and so you put it in your filing cabinet. But before you put it in your filing cabinet, you have to put it in a folder, right? Right. In order to be able to retrieve that folder later, you have to label that folder. And if you have Alzheimer's disease, what happens is in the beginning stages, you, you may put that information in a folder, but in, in uh, label it, but it's not a clear label and it takes longer. Well, let me, let me preface this. Normal aging is when you have lots of folders and so you have to, when you want to retrieve something, you have to go through all those folders to figure out where it is. So it takes you longer to remember something. Alzheimer's disease is where you don't label the folder. So you have no access, you have no way of retrieving the information. Other forms of dementia will, um, like, like I'll talk about vascular dementia in a second, um, is where um, it, it, the label is there, but um, you, you can't access it for other reasons. And I'll talk about that in a second. So Alzheimer's is, is a degenerative disease that really starts early on with memory, but it involves the entire brain. Um, and the person, as they proceed through the disease, will actually lose brain mass up to 60% of the brain weight is lost by the per by the time the person may die with the disease wow. so it, it's a it's a devastating um, loss the next most common form of dementia is multi-infarct dementia which is related pretty much to the high blood pressure and uh, it's where you have a lot of little infarcts in the brain hundreds of thousands of them that are causing tiny little holes in the brain. And eventually these things mount up and they may um, be focused in a particular area of the brain and you're gonna lose more and more function in that area of the brain. It's usually related to um, vascular disease. Another form of um, infarct where we have large strokes in the brain. Um, where you lose whole sections of the brain. Um, and that often has a lot to do with high cholesterol and high blood pressure. Um, frontal temporal lobe dementia is another form of dementia illness, which is fairly rare. Um, and it usually affects first the front part of the brain. And that front part of the brain is where all our moral being all our, um, all the things our mothers taught us, all the things we learned in church uh, are focused in that front part of the brain. Also, it's our judgment, it's our reasoning, it's our decision-making, it's our ability to, to figure out problems in that front part of the brain that is affected early. Frontal temporal lobe dementia then can all, 
not only does it call, cause just disruption in judgment and reasoning, but eventually it causes problems with memory and timing. Um, and in, in some cases, it can cause paralysis. Um, but it's a, it's a more, we're seeing more and more frontal temporal lobe dementia. There are many, many other forms, but those are the, the basic ones, I think, that, that most of the forms of, of dementing illness. I'd be interested in hearing from folks what kinds of diagnosis they've received. I think what, if you're seeing a problem, you're seeing someone with memory loss, even if it's benign memory loss, casual memory loss, it's worth following up because it may be the kind of memory loss, that, particularly if it's related to one of the vascular issues, where if you get treatment, you may be able to slow things down. Um, so it starts off with, I think, talking to other members of the family and saying, are you seeing what I'm seeing in Mary? And if you all come to the same conclusion, then sitting down with Mary and saying, you know, we've all seen these things. And there, they, they could be symptoms of something that is very much treatable. So we're, we're, we're going to encourage you to talk to your primary care doctor and get this checked out. And before you go, Mary goes to the primary care doctor, I would suggest that someone in the family contacts the primary care doctor and share with him or her exactly what you're seeing and what your concerns are so that the doctor has some agenda to know what to look for and what to examine. Because when the love, your loved one gets into the doctor's office by themselves, and the doctor says, how are you doing? The loved one is saying, I'm doing fine. And, and the doctor isn't going to know what in the world to be looking for. So you've got to get to the doctor before that appointment. Often what the primary care doctor is going to do is refer that person to a neurologist or, or to a neuropsychologist. The neuropsychologist is going to give a series of paper and pencil tests um, to ascertain what the person's capabilities are and where their weaknesses are. That will help sort of tell us what's going on. But the neurologist will order a series of scans that will look at parts of the brain that um, will tell us more about what's going on and what particular kind of dementia we may be looking at. Keep in mind that the primary care physician is looking at all the um, physical issues that could be causing the person to have memory loss, confusion, or disorientation. And these and, types of scans and tests are something that can be done just as well with, on a person with a visual impairment or a person who's totally blind? As um, yeah, the... the <laughs> It's We're going to run into problems there. Yeah. It's funny that you ask. Um, all, the, all the brain scans, yes, can be done with someone with a visual impairment. The psychometric tests um, involve a lot of vision, visual judgment. And, and just as an aside, I've given these tests for years. And I'm involved in a research study now um, as a volunteer looking at um, 
the people in my age bracket um, to test them periodically uh, to, to, to see how their memory is doing and to um, uh, look at weight loss or gain uh, as a determining factor in the cause of Alzheimer's. So um, I'm tested regularly uh, and I, and I, uh, because I know that these tests, um, I, I can get by, um, but someone with a visual impairment probably could not. Um, and they'd have to have other kinds of memory tests that are, are less dependent on vision. And there are some tests, but they're not as predictive as the um, more in-depth tests that are developed for folks with vision. Um, I, I, we neglect, neglected to explain that I have a visual impairment, or did we? I don't even remember. Um, but uh, that's a very important question. It, it, there are, in the neuropsych stuff, there are some tests that the person can't, who has a visual impairment can't do, but um, that doesn't mean they still, there aren't some other tests that the person can do um, mm -hmm. that will be predictive. What are more important are the scans, which uh, the brain scans, and that can be determined um, uh, without any problem with someone with vision. All right. Well, I thank you very much. Um, I know we're running a little short on time, so I'm going to ask Donna to um, have people raise their hands if they have a question. And please, please try to keep your question as succinct as possible so that we can get as many in as possible in the about 15 or 20, 15, 18 minutes we have left. So, um, Don, uh, Donna, do you want yes. to remind people how to yes how to mute and how to raise hands? I can definitely do that. All right, all right. Uh, from your PC, it'll be Alt A to unmute. Uh, from the Mac, it's going to be Command Shift A. From the app, it's going to be on the bottom lower left hand corner. Uh, from the phone, it's uh, star six. Uh, to um, to raise your hand, it'll be uh, from the PC, Alt-Y, and from the Mac, it's going to be Option-Y. From the app, uh, it'll be on the um, right-hand side in the More button. And um, let's see. From the phone, it's Star 9. Thank you very so, much. First, we have um, area code 614. You're allowed to unmute. Hello, area code 614. Okay, so we'll come back to that one. Uh, Linda Yaks. Hi there. I have a, just a couple of quick questions. One, you talked about the eye contact, and I'm wondering with folks who, are, uh, who have... Um, artificial eyes. How does that work for us? My second question is, you mentioned the chemical. Is there any way to replace this chemical? And the third question, just real quick, is my cousin had Louis body's disease. I just kind of like to know how that differs from Alzheimer's. 
good questions. Um, if you have artificial eyes, um, that your eyes are not going to be dilated. Um, so it's it's not going to be an issue. Um, if the person has art, if the person with dementia has art, uh, artificial eyes, they're not going to be looking at your eyes for um, that synchrony that I talked about. So um, that's not going to be helpful. Um, the uh, uh, the third question about the Lewy body disease that does in fact cause a dementia, um, but it also causes a number of other physical symptoms. And um, it makes the physical symptoms make the dementia combination even worse. Um, so people with, with Lewy body disease, um, now there are treatments for Lewy body disease that are not necessarily available for other forms of dementia. So that's always something that you can be talking to your doctor about whether or not the person is eligible for those kinds of treatments. But um, Lewy body disease is a very difficult disease because of the physical changes the person goes through as well as their dementia, very challenging. And um, you, I think one of the most important things with Lewy body disease is because there's long periods of sleep deprivation that make everything worse, that you be aware that that's like a likely symptom and when you start to see it to report to your doctor because there are treatments to to deal with the sleep deprivation um, some people have problems with falling out of bed a lot and of course that wakes them up and so that there are things you can do to prevent that from happening but getting with Lewy body disease it's very important to get eight hours of contiguous sleep because that's what is going to clean the brain as much as possible of toxins that are accumulating. What was it? There was another one. I forgot what it was now. You had another question. Um, uh, she's muted. Sorry. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. So let's let um, 614 try again because they did get unmuted once the other person was unmuted. Erica, 614, star six. Hello, 614. Uh, maybe not. Okay, so we'll go on to Verlin. Verlin, yeah. Hi, um, I wanted to know if there is proof that this is hereditary. I have it very strongly on my mother's side and also, um, my father has some form of dementia. We're not sure what right now. There, um, there's one form of Alzheimer's that is young onset Alzheimer's that is associated with chromosome 21. And if you have that form of Alzheimer's disease, it's highly inheritable. Um, you'll see brothers, sisters, and so forth uh, in a family who uh, will all have the disease. It's very rare. Um, chromosome 21 is also associated with Down syndrome. And so people with Down syndrome have a much higher incidence of Alzheimer's disease. And, um, but the majority of people
Sorry. I'm sorry, Paul. I, I, uh, I'm sorry about that. I was trying to get that person who was uh, making noise ahead of you. Sorry. I'm sorry okay. about that. All right. Um, so the lady's question about um, whether it's inheritable, um, I don't know how far we got with that, but there's one form, a very rare form of Alzheimer's um, that's usually young onset. People have it before the age of 60. Um, it is highly um, inheritable, um, but the majority of people with Alzheimer's disease, pure Alzheimer's disease, um, there's some degree of inheritability, but it is, it's, it's slight. Um, and um, it, Alzheimer's probably has more, has less to do with genetics and more to do with um, cardiovascular health. Um, and um, as uh, uh, being something that eventually causes change. Um, it's not to say that there is inheritability in the more common form of Alzheimer's, but it's fairly low. It's probably less than 20%. Um, That's interesting. The, uh, um, there was another question she had, but I don't remember what it was. Well, we've got about eight people. In yep. All right, so Betsy, you're next. Betsy Granovich. Dr. Ray, I have to rush off of here right away, but I'll try to ask it. Just so you know, I'm 59. I've got a form of dementia that, according to Emory University, they know it's not Alzheimer's. They cannot diagnose because I have artificial eyes. So I'd like to be able to talk with you somehow, somewhere, to figure out what we can tell them they can test with. They said there's no test available. So we're just living with the dementia issues. Um, have they given you verbal um, questions they did do, some verbal, yes, they already did the verbal. Okay. But they, did they, they do it, brain scans? They did the brain scan and it's not Alzheimer's because the lacy stuff is not there. Okay, but they didn't. Um, and no. Emory, yeah, universities want the, Emory universities want the top ones out there in the country. It is. And they, they said that there's not, no test for totally blind people with artificial eyes. So I just wanted to let you know that that is still a problem. Well, there, there are. I sort of differ from, with that in that there are memory um, questions around memory that don't need you to be to have vision. So if somehow we can get in touch later, I've got to run to another meeting. But yep. if we can get in touch, Terry right. or, or or Debbie Hailstone would should know how to reach me somehow through someone. I'll talk with Paul about it. Thanks. All right, area code seven one six. Hi. Hi, my name is Kathy Lyons, and for several years now I've had horrible memory issues. And I'm just wondering, I've mentioned it to my primary, and he says, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But, you know, he, he sounds to me like he's trying to tell me, now nah, you're not losing your mind. But the memory seems to be getting worse. Am I on, the, on track to become demented? Um, I think it's worth getting uh, someone to pay, really pay attention to what you're saying and what, you, what you're experiencing. Um, there are uh, clinics that um, specialize in memory loss 
and mm -hmm. um, I would try to connect with one of those. Um, and just for your own peace of mind, because in the back of your mind, you're saying, oh my God, am I looking down the road to you know, some disease like Alzheimer's? And that's yeah. going to cause you all kinds of anxiety and make your memory worse. Oh, gee. Um, <laughs> because we know anxiety makes your memory worse. There are lots yeah, it of, does. There are lots of things that can cause memory loss. Sleep apnea is one of them. Um, and people with vision loss um, have problems with sleep apnea um, because they they don't have exposure to outside light and to normal light and you know go in and out of the phases of sleep. Um, so I mean, one of the first things you want to look at is whether or not um, your your because of your vision, you're not getting the correct amount of sleep or going through the right phases of sleep. Um, and there are medicines for that, actually, um, that can be helpful. So I would get to a, a memory disorders clinic um, mm -hmm. and, and, and say to your primary care, um, you know, that you would want a referral for that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do have sleep apnea, out. and I do use a Respironics BiPAP okay. machine. Okay, and you have a visual loss? Yes, um, okay. I'm down to light perception only. Okay, yeah. And you are, and do you go outside very much? Not now, not with COVID, and mm -hmm. my orientation center seems to be suffering. And um, in... All that mix, I also have a missing enzyme. I lack ornithine aminotransferase, whose mission is to metabolize ornithine. And so it stockpiles in your blood, and that's what caused my blindness. And it causes me to have skeletal muscle fast twitch. So I could be holding a pen, and I, my fingers twitch. And not only do I no longer have the pen, but I've propelled it halfway across the room. And it affects the immune system. Do you still have retinas? They're there. Okay. What I would suggest is go to your eye doctor, have them take a look at your retina. And because uh, the changes in beta amyloid um, and uh, the neurofibrillary tangles that are caused by the beta amyloid are visible in the retina. And, okay. And... You have to, he has to use something called a scapin's scope to see it. I see. Scapin's. I saw Dr. Scapin's in Boston. Yeah, he was my doctor, too. He invented that particular scope, and um, um, skilled doctors can see if it's Alzheimer's disease um, or anything related that's going to cause. Um, uh, enzyme enzyme changes in, in brain tissue, your retina's brain tissue. Um, so that would be a place to start. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I'm about to take. All right, Chris Coulter is the next one on here. Yeah. Um, do it in about thirty seconds. We can get that in as our last call, unfortunately. Go, Chris.
All right, Chris, Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm needed. Um, how do you deal with a situation where the person who is totally blind is the person who has um, Alzheimer's and cannot see the dilation of the other person's eyes? Right. Well, then it's, it's you know, they, they probably have never seen those eye dilations. So it's just the lost form of communication. So that now you need to use your voice in as a way of transmitting emotion, positive uh, emotion. Okay. And um, uh, and use you know terms of endearment a lot, honey, loved one, whatever you call the person. That's why people do that. Okay, and that's a, that's instinctive, then, isn't it? Kind of. Yeah. It your your goal remember is to bring about positive emotion <clears throat> any way you can bring about positive emotion um, by using some of the old ways you communicated with that person um, that's important and if you just keep if you come away from my talk with anything it's that your goal as a caregiver is to bring about positive emotion and to avoid negative emotion right Thank you. That kind of confirmed something I was thinking. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. And Paul, I want to thank you ever so much. This has been a great, great session for all of us, I think. Um, I've come up with at least another half a dozen questions that I wish we had more time for. And I can see right now we have about seven other people who had questions, and I'm sorry that we haven't been able to get to those, but maybe we can impose on you again sometime. I was just going to suggest happy to do it. We would, that would be wonderful. That really would be wonderful. We've gotten so much positive response to this for this call tonight.